Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Aaron Wright, who has been a lifelong lover of technology and a serial entrepreneur. Aaron is among a handful of people who has been contributing to crypto since 2011 within the Bitcoin community, alongside the Ethereum community with Vitalik Buterin and Joe Lubin. And today, he is known by many as the DAO master, having founded OpenLaw and incubated a successful DAO ecosystem, including the Limited Liability Autonomous Organization, also known as the LAO, which has invested in over 40 projects in the Ethereum ecosystem, Flamingo DAO, which focuses on acquiring digital art and collectibles, and most recently, Neptune DAO, which is the first DeFi native liquidity provider. It was a super thought-provoking conversation that gave me a peek into the future of innovative legal structures. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm sitting down with Aaron Wright. To some, he is Professor Wright. Aaron, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you on the show with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Aaron, you've been on several podcasts as of late. You are you know, the face of a lot of the conversations around DAOs, which will be the focus of our talk today. You've been heavily impacted by technology your whole life. Um, I remember hearing something to the effect of you having your first family computer at the young age of five, uh, and this was in sort of the late 1980s or so. When did your fascination with technology and more specifically with open source technology come about? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was fortunate enough, my dad did scientific research for the U.S. government. So he was uh, on the internet, the original internet. Uh, the one that was maintained uh, by the government um, for uh, most of my life. So even though uh, I may be a little bit older than some folks, uh, I probably am one of the few people that have been entirely digital native, um, you know, for my entire life. Uh, So I remember when I was young and he was clanking away on a computer and message boards, chatting with people late at night on computers that didn't even have color monitors. And that's where my love of technology really uh, started. And uh, I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to dive in deeper and deeper into tech uh, after college and during college and um, you know even during and after law school. I'm a law professor. And you know part of uh, understanding the law and, and getting deeper into technology uh, naturally gravitated me towards open source technology. You know this notion of uh, having software that's freely distributed, uh, that can be widely used, I just found very compelling for political reasons, for societal reasons, et cetera. Uh, and I really just uh, dove in super deep into that ecosystem. I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time uh, in and around the Wikipedia ecosystem. Uh, I sold a company to Jimmy Wales uh, and his for-profit company, Wikia, where we started and tried to build one of the first open source search engines. Uh, at least one of the first open source search engines in kind of the Web2 era. And um, and I really just uh, believed in this idea that, you know, open technology, open source technology you know, should be the default technology for uh, for folks around the globe. 
uh, so that we can work together productively and, and proactively. And not surprisingly, uh, when I heard about Bitcoin starting in about 2011, I was completely fascinated you know, this idea of not just having open source technology where people could work together to build a you know, public library, public encyclopedia, uh, like we were doing at Wikia and at Wikipedia uh, was fascinating. And I just kept on falling deeper and deeper down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And when Ethereum was announced, uh, I got very excited about it and was able to work with lots of the folks that were helping to build Ethereum and uh, have gotten really deep into the Ethereum ecosystem. And not surprisingly, a big thread in the Ethereum ecosystem has been always DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. And uh, that's one area that I'm particularly fascinated in. That's great. I mean, you were an early Bitcoiner, an early member of the Ethereum community. And of course, now, as you've just mentioned, a pioneer in the DAO space. And I'm sure some of those listening in our audience right now are thinking, I'm late. I've missed the boat on Bitcoin, uh, but I really want to get into the crypto space and start contributing and building. Um, but listening to your story, my question is, how does one find oneself sort of constantly at the edge of innovation, right? Was it really serendipitous for you to just kind of fall into these niches at the time? And I would argue crypto is still a pretty big niche. Or did you kind of have people or things set up for you along the way in your journey that put you in places where you were meeting sort of the cutting edge of innovation? I know it's... Uh... There's probably lots of different approaches that people take uh, when it comes to exploring technology. I just really follow things that I'm interested in. And this is the professor side of me. If I'm interested in something, I dig in deep. I try to understand everything that's going on with it. And then eventually that will gravitate towards, you know, reaching out to folks that are a part of a project or putting together a project and, and just taking it from there. Uh, you know, I do agree with you that, you know, crypto is still in its early innings. Um, you know, even though there's about $2 trillion or over $2 trillion in assets that are digital assets, um, I think there's a long way to go until this entirely digital financial system, entirely digital property system, entirely digi digital marketplace system, entirely digital organizational system really comes to full fruition. And that's what folks in the Ethereum ecosystem broadly refer to as Web3. This idea that we can have an internet that isn't necessarily maintained or controlled by a handful of large corporations, but is really controlled by the users, is really uh, controlled by open source technology, and that uses a blockchain as kind of its organizing spine uh, on the back end. So it's very early. Uh, there's lots of different ways to get involved. Uh, I think what's exciting about uh, blockchain technology and the Ethereum ecosystem in, in general is if you are a developer, there's plenty of ways to hop in. If you are an artist, you can begin to create uh, NFTs or non-fungible tokens and begin to interact with your community or tribe that, that is, um, that's supporting your work. If you are more you know, quantitative or analytic and are interested in finance or economics, there's plenty of interesting projects in the decentralized finance uh, space. And if you're interested in governance and, and thinking through policy-related issues, there's plenty of stuff in the decentralized autonomous organization or DAO ecosystem or other kind of governance opportunities where you can hop in and, and really begin to make a mark on the community. So 
there's lots of different areas and ways to gain exposure. And I think that that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm assuming that the creative folks around the globe that are playing around with this technology will think of countless other use cases and other opportunities to hopefully build this broader vision of Web3. For you, when did your interest in crypto intersect then with law, which is what you are focused on these days, especially as a professor? You know, what does some of your research now center around? Yeah, so I became fascinated with Bitcoin, this notion that you could, you know, codify a monetary system using open source uh, software. At the time, I was uh, actually working as a lawyer in New York at some prominent New York law firms. And I was slaving away one night. Uh, it was like two, three in the morning. And I uh, was heading home. Uh, I took a, you know, an Uber cab home um, and was driving through the empty streets of New York. And I was a little delirious because I was working pretty hard. And it occurred to me that, you know, if, if you can have something like a uh, monetary system entirely encoded, you presumably could also have an entire legal system, set of rules that were encoded uh, using similar technology. And I just became really fascinated with the idea. I got really excited about it. I messaged you know, some friends that I've worked with in the past and some of these projects about this concept. Uh, they wrote back, that sounds really hard. Uh, and I said, <laughs> it does, but uh, it's super interesting. And around that time, about a month later, that's when Ethereum um, launched so or was announced. It didn't launch yet. And it, it, it had a lot of the similar concepts that I was thinking about. So... Uh, that's that's kind of where this intersection between Bitcoin and, and the law really uh, germinated for me. It was kind of thinking about this notion that we may not just be able to program money, but the rules around money. And the rules around money today are you know codified and ossified in, in you know written laws that a, a government or state or some other body uh, puts together. Uh, and I think that this notion that you're able to uh, apply rules, um, code-based rules around um, different things, uh, including other forms of assets and property. I just became super fascinated, and that broad concept of like applying rules around property is what uh, developers refer to as smart contracts. So it's a really fascinating concept. And as you dig deeper into the smart contract uh, literature and ecosystem, you realize that some of these concepts have been floating around for centuries. So Leibniz, one of the folks credited with founding calculus and a whole bunch of other really interesting scientific and mathematical discoveries. He was fascinated with this concept hundreds of years ago. You know, how can we embody the rules of society and logic and symbolic reasoning? And it's, it's pretty much a, a modern take on some of these earlier notions that have been floating around the planet for hundreds of years. Mm, yeah. Let's talk more about the various structures then of these decentralized autonomous organizations, um, I've heard the distinction between permissioned versus permissionless structures. Could you break down these two types of structures and introduce any other ways of thinking about the various structures of DAOs that we see today? Yeah, sure. So the DAO is a broad uh, category. It stands for, again, a decentralized autonomous organization. The idea is that a part of an organization is somehow automated using software and not just any software, but these smart contract based uh, rules that I described before. And there's a pretty broad definition uh, of decentralized autonomous organization. 
and there's subcategories that can be broken down into a couple of different buckets. So one is a set of organizations that are not fully autonomous in the sense that they are relying uh, entirely on software to be managed. Instead, uh, they use software to push decision-making to the edges, to folks that are participants in it. Some folks refer to these as decentralized organizations or DOs or DOs. And in that category, there's a whole bunch of use cases that can apply. You know, those are use cases like pooling together capital to make investments. So kind of a modern riff on an investment fund of some sort, pooling together capital to purchase one thing together. Uh, we're starting to see some examples of that. Uh, pooling together people so that they can create something together. Maybe that's an NFT. Maybe that's a, a piece of digital art. Uh, maybe that's you know some other creative work. Uh, people using these types of structures to organize so that they can provide services to to a third party. There's a whole host of use cases around these decentralized organizations uh, that I think uh, we'll continue to see more of over the next several years. There's also using these decentralized organizations to manage DeFi protocols or decentralized financial protocols. So the notion there is that the users of these protocols should be the ones governing them. Uh, they should be the ones weighing in on how the software should evolve, how the ecosystem should evolve. It shouldn't be run by a corporation with a board of directors and a kind of a, a top-down approach. Instead, it should be a bottom-up approach. And that really aligns with lots of concepts uh, we have in the US and also in Europe about having stakeholders or people that have skin in the game in some sort of way, uh, being able to, to manage these types of organizations. And then on the other side, there's things that are more purely algorithmic in nature. They're really, uh, you know, the group of folks that are around it are really leaning into using software to organize their affairs. Some good examples of this, you know, arguably is are networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Uh, you have this software package uh, like Bitcoin that's maintained by a handful of developers, but primarily all the operations of Bitcoin are written down in software. So the algorithm and the algorithms in the Bitcoin, um, the Bitcoin software, the Bitcoin nodes, the Bitcoin network are all uh, really memorialized in a code-based way. So those are kind of the closest thing to that we have right now to more algorithmic-based DAOs. So it falls into a broad category. For decentralized organizations, there's different ways to have people participate. You can make it really open-ended, anybody can join or you can make it more like a country club where mem existing members have to let in future members. And mm -hmm. folks are kind of exploring these different uh, these different type of models. I imagine just like we see today, there'll be a whole menu of options and you know, depending on the use case, we'll see different folks structuring things in different ways. But in general, these organizations are very flat, right? There's no one person, no small group of people that are in charge. Instead, it tends to be either the folks that are participating, that are voting democratically on, um, on different uh, decisions or different decision points, or it's entirely run by an algorithm, which is a super fascinating concept. Yeah, you've tweeted before that DAOs will serve the aggregation, governance, and curation layer of Web3. And in this context, I'm wondering, how should we understand the various DAO verticals that exist today, um, you know, against the backdrop of these big buckets that you talked about, what are some of these DAO verticals that we see? 
Yeah, well, we're seeing a, a handful emerge in kind of the early days of DAOs. Uh, one are these curation DAOs, particularly in the NFT ecosystem. Um, I was fortunate enough to help pull together one of them. It's called Flamingo DAO. And the concept is that a large group of people can act as a hive mind of sorts. So they can sift through the information on the internet, which is vast. It's hard for any one person or, or small group of uh, people uh, to really comprehend and, and fully sift through. Uh, and in that process, people can collect information, bring it back to kind of a, a common group, and you can begin to see consensus building around certain ideas and, and concepts. And what that enables is an organic way to filter through a whole bunch of information. That's particularly useful in the context of something like NFTs and this emerging ecosystem of digital art, because it's hard to know if you like something, if other people are going to like it. It's hard to know that if you think something may be valuable, that others are going to necessarily agree with you. So it's a way to begin to enable this group of people, what I like to think of as like a hive mind, different people with different interests, different networks, different perspectives. Uh, they can all uh, begin to look at a more narrow set of information that's been collected and start to see what you know what filters up to the top. So we've seen this in web too, right? If you look at platforms like Reddit or other kind of social platforms where people are able to vote and interact with links or other content, and you can kind of see some of the best stuff float to the top, I think the same uh, approach is really helpful for sifting through either business opportunities, if it's something like making investments into projects, selecting art, if it's something like uh, purchasing NFTs, supporting communities, if we start to see this model being applied to other con in other contexts like social tokens or personal tokens, or even evaluating projects for things like decentralized finance. So that's one huge category that I think we're, we're starting to see. And I think the powerful thing about DAOs is that it really is a nice structure to capture this hive mind. You know, I think there's a general notion that a group of people, if they're not closely related to one another and have properly aligned incentives, can make as good, if not better, decisions than a bunch of experts. And I think that works particularly well on the internet as we just increasingly get this fire hose of information thrown at us. No one person is going to be able to do it by themselves. They kind of have to band together in order to kind of tackle this wave of information that constantly that constantly is washing over all of us. Let's talk more about your projects, right? You mentioned Flamingo Dow, which is primarily focused on acquiring digital art and collectibles. Also the LAO, it's Legal Autonomous Organization, is it? Yeah, it's Limited Liability Autonomous Organization. Yeah, I'm happy to unpack them. So uh, starting just about a year ago, uh, we, get, we began to to pull together a bunch of DAOs. So there's some earlier DAO experiments, particularly in the Ethereum ecosystem, that were awesome, but they turned out to be spectacular failures, either for technical reasons or for legal reasons. So the most notable example of this was in 2017, there was a project called the DAO uh, that was aiming to be a decentralized venture capital fund. So it wanted to pull people together in the Ethereum ecosystem that had been around for a while. It wanted to have projects apply, uh, to this structure. And if it was judged a good idea, a good project, then capital would be provided to the, the founding team or the group of developers that were trying to build something cool. Unfortunately, it completely fell apart. It blew up. There was some technical issues in the smart contracts and that resulted in a hacker or attacker or robber 
to come in and take a lot of the assets that were collected. And it was not an insignificant amount of assets. It was uh, at the time, roughly $50 million worth of ether. Today, that would be worth billions of dollars. Yeah, I remember. (laughs) Yeah, and this attacker drained the DAO were part of the DAO's assets, and it led to a lot of drama in the Ethereum ecosystem, um, including a, a fork or a kind of a new version of Ethereum that had to get created. Um, so there was lots of interest. I think people overall thought it was a, a really uh, useful experiment to think about how the community could decide what the best projects were in the ecosystem and find ways to support them. Uh, but there was technical issues, and then ultimately some regulators weighed in and decided that the structure would have ran into regulatory problems. So we pulled together um, kind of the next version of the DAO itself. Uh, We named it the Lao. We rooted it and pegged it to a US legal entity to deal with some of the legal concerns. And then we worked with a bunch of talented developers to sort through and improve smart contracts so that they can be safe and secure so that uh, an attacker robber wouldn't be able to, to take all the assets. And then people began to pile in. That's what happens in the crypto ecosystem. Uh, People began to contribute their Ether to the Lao. At this point, we have just about $50 million in the Lao, which is is pretty amazing. Uh, Mm -hmm. We use this high mind approach to identify great opportunities, great deals, um, great teams, and we provide them with capital so that they can hopefully build something that makes the ecosystem stronger. Uh, So we back 50 projects um, and it's, it's really... Um, it's really been interesting to watch this kind of collective hive mind of the, the Lao and its members uh, kind of tackle through the, the Ethereum ecosystem and identify great projects, oftentimes much faster than traditional crypto venture capital funds or more traditional venture capital funds. So we've been kind of at the forefront. We've been spotting projects even before other funds may, may be identifying them, which we think is pretty cool. Um, and what's also interesting about this hive mind is that it's active, right? It's not just focused on one thing. It began to, the members began to think about different types of DAO structures and where they would be useful. And, um, and that led to the kind of birth of several other DAOs that have been put together under the Lao umbrella over the past year. That includes Flamingo DAO, which is focused on purchasing digital art and other collectibles, uh, you know, what folks would call NFTs in our ecosystem and and also has resulted in the launch of another DAO called Neptune, which is focused on providing liquidity to emerging decentralized financial uh, products and services that are that are getting launched on Ethereum. So in a year, we've gone from zero Ether or zero dollars that have been contributed to these DAO structures to just about a hundred million dollars that's been contributed. It's backed, you know, uh, over 50 projects. It's purchased over a thousand pieces of artwork and other other uh, NFTs and collectibles. It's uh, beginning to support a whole bunch of folks in the DeFi ecosystem so so that they can launch their networks. They can see if what they're building will work or get the support that they need when it comes to providing capital. A lot of these systems need capital to flow through them to see if the underlying structure works. And that's just the beginning. I imagine over the next uh, couple months, and we'll start to see even more DAOs that are coming out of the Lao network. And if you zoom out, uh, you know, a year, two years, three years, I wouldn't be surprised that the Lao network is hundreds of DAOs that are all kind of loosely working together, uh, but not coordinated by any one party.
And if you start to think about hundreds of DAOs and hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars that presumably would be in them, you start to imagine kind of the rebirth of a Silicon Valley, but a Silicon Valley that's not tethered to one geographic area. It's really mm. com- completely virtualized in the cloud. And that's kind of what we're, we're pushing towards um, collectively. And it's pretty exciting. It's pretty interesting. And I think it really hits the tone and, and timber of what blockchain developers are interested in, which is community support. And I think it's also right, right timed and right size for where we are in the internet, where we're seeing kind of these swarm like structures uh, beginning to uh, make a difference when it comes to politics or finance with things like Wall Street bets or, or kind of some other, other parts of society. Thanks for that rundown. I have so many questions that are kind of just flowing through my head as you're talking about your various experiences, you know, building up these DAOs. I guess one is what are some specific challenges, if any, that you've come across coordinating these DAOs? Is it harder for the Lao versus coordinating for Flamingo DAO? Any certain experiences that come to mind? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is still technical challenges. So we're still in the very early days of DAOs and kind of exploring what their structure should look like. And there's a lot of embedded cost in terms of how to manage securely, uh, you know, assets that are uh, digital, digitally native and running on a blockchain. So there's always trade-offs with security. So one way to keep assets secure is to make it very costly to move them around. And that's effectively how the underlying smart contracts work today. Um, but that cost, while it works for larger ve- larger DAOs, larger vehicles like Glau and Flamingo, it's not going to work for a smaller group of folks that want to you know, pull together assets or pull together their resources and begin to kind of tackle the world. So we've been working very hard on the open law side, pulling together what we view as a next generation DAO framework that will hopefully lower the costs uh, related to setting up a DAO, operating a DAO, Etc. And another challenge on the technical front is that when you deploy a DAO today, you kind of have to set it and it's really hard to change it. It gets kind of permanently imprinted uh, on a blockchain. So um, as part of the technical enhancements, we're making it a bit more modular. What that means is that you can plug and play or you can assemble like Lego blocks, different um, functions or workflows or aspects of running an organization together. And hopefully this combination of reducing the cost of setting these up and the combination of making things more like Lego blocks, we can begin to see a wide proliferation of, of lots and lots of different, uh, different DAOs. Uh, the second challenge is regulatory. You know, so any new structure, uh, folks that are responsible for passing laws or making sure that the public isn't hurt naturally will raise an eyebrow about, about that. Um, and so, there's still a number of legal challenges and costs that get imposed by the current legal system. We've been chipping away at that too in the state of Wyoming, which is a state in the U.S. Um, they just passed and we played a role helping to craft this legislation, a law that actually recognizes DAOs as entities. So you can set up in the U.S. something that's legally recognized and it's called a DAO. And the way that it's set up, it should be a little bit cheaper um, you know, to put together these types of um, these types of structures. So it's kind of a one-two combination of cost reduction and then also recognition, which I think is important. And what that means is DAOs can increasingly interact with the legacy world, with the, the world that we see today. So if a DAO in the future wanted to purchase another company, hire folks, 
um, you know, make more traditional investments, the costs of them doing that will go down, which we think is really important. And I guess the last thing that's always a challenge is just what's the right form of governance? You know, we we have a pretty a pretty vanilla approach in terms of um, getting folks to weigh in when making decisions. You know, it's usually based on the amount of capital that you've contributed to one of these structures. So if mm -hmm. you contributed, you know, let's say 100 ETH and I uh, contributed 10 ETH, well, you would have 10 times the voting weight that I would. So there's lots of experimentation about what's the right way to, to have governance and, you know, what's the right way to structure these things. But at a high level, I think what's fascinating and really where things are going is that these DAOs are effectively like online communities that I imagine many of you have participated in. But these online communities are not just about pulling people together on a topic and talking about it. They're communities that can get pulled together. They can have a bank account and they can have some light rules around them. And that one, two, three combination enables online communities to, to really mobilize and begin to make more of a difference. So imagine if a subreddit that you may go to or some other message board or online community that you're part of actually had a bank account that had the ability to take actions. So it's not just about chatting with one another, building social relationships. It's actually about trying to make a difference, putting, putting those assets to work in a productive way. And I think that that is the future. You know, that is the native structure of the internet, groups of people who may mm -hmm. not know one another, getting together around things that they're interested in. And now, once you add a uh, you know, monetary layer to it, and some rules, you're able to actually push things forward and hopefully in a productive way. Yeah, I want to put a pin in that and just roll back a few minutes to, you know, this Wyoming bill that you mentioned that would help people create legally recognized DAOs. How did you get involved in that process? Um, and, and what was it like working with the local Wyoming government, right? I, I imagine they didn't give immediate buy-in at the proposal stage for this bill? Yeah. So in Wyoming, they've passed uh, about 13 different laws, at least 13 different laws, trying to deal with some of the legal issues around digital assets. Um, so they've passed laws that classify you know, what digital assets will be considered under Wyoming law, i.e. will a token um, be considered a security, a commodity, something else. Uh, they've set up and clarified rules related to property ownership. So if you own a digital asset, what's it going to be considered for purposes of bankruptcy law and a whole bunch of other kind of more complicated, very basic commercial law questions. Uh, they've also set up specialized banks, uh, including one called a speedy bank, which enables you to become a more traditional bank, but actually hold digital assets. So the state of Wyoming has been leaning in heavily into digital assets, I think, collectively as a state. They view this as the future and have been trying to pass sensible rules and laws to enable this future to manifest. And um, I've known lots of folks that have been a part of those initiatives. Uh, I've helped draft uh, at least one of the 13 bills uh, in the past. So uh, somewhat familiar with the legisl legislators and uh, state senators and, and Congress folks that are in Wyoming, and, and they were asking folks, you know, what's next? You know, what other things need to get solved? And I noted that uh, that DAOs are coming, um, that there's a lot of interesting things that are emerging right now, and that it would be helpful to the well-intentioned developers and folks that want to explore this space to have a little bit more legal clarity. And you know, 
the Wyoming folks were completely on board with doing it. They're a complete pleasure to work with. Um, and, you know, it was a, a collaborative process between some state senators and other Congress folks in Wyoming, some other people that are deep in the ecosystem that weighed in on the legislation. Uh, there's a committee that is specifically responsible for blockchain related bills in Wyoming. And so mm-hmm. once we kind of got got ducks in a row inside of the committee, and then it went to the Senate, then the House, and then it got just got signed by the governor and will be implemented in July. So um, it, that's kind of the first step. There's areas, and we knew this even when it got passed, that needed to be improved, some language that could be improved, some adjustments and enhancements. So hopefully over the next year, we can begin to smooth out those rough edges and and folks can uh, can find a place where they want to set up you know, entities and organizations. And I think why... Wyoming was also interested in this is that if you have a DAO, something that's operating on the internet, you really need to ground it in one place. So you're not going to have necessarily like 50 to 60, 100 different entities that are scattered across the globe. So whatever mm-hmm. jurisdiction does this first and does it well, will likely become you know the place for everybody around the globe to set up, which is obviously beneficial for uh, a small state like Wyoming if they're collecting fees and a whole bunch of other things related to it. Yeah. I imagine this is a call for more of the DAOs that will be popping up within the Lao network to be setting up in Wyoming versus going to another state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, I think that there's a lot of advantages to that. It's part of the strength of the U S system. You have 50 different States that are, that are mostly responsible for, financial and contractual rules and regulations, and they can experiment with different uh, approaches. And if it looks like it's healthy, like things are not going bad, people are not getting hurt, then it can begin to get propagated across all 50 states. And then, um, you know, given given the U.S.'s, you know, global importance, it tends to bleed out into other jurisdictions as well. But, you know, it's also interesting about the Wyoming Dow legislation, it's uniquely American. You know, we we have this notion in the U.S. that you can have organizations that do have limited liability. That means you can put assets up at stake and not be responsible for them, um, or you're only responsible for them to the extent that they're related to the entity, not to your other personal assets. And you don't need a manager. If you go to other parts of the, the planet, people assume that there's going to be somebody that's in charge of a company. They need to have a boss. They need to have a manager. They need to have mm. a board, somebody that's responsible for it. In the U.S., we don't. Um, and I think that that was the right call. And um, and that's why the U.S. has a lot of flexibility here. Other jurisdictions, I think, are going to have to really get over that hump, this this concept that you can actually have an organization that's headless, that doesn't have people that are in charge of it. Yeah, I think doing a cross-cultural case study on, you know, DAOs and whether it'll work in Asia, right? Or whether it will take off rather as a concept in Asia and go mainstream uh, versus, you know, various countries in the West, like that would be super interesting actually, because you kind of have to look at the legal framework in each of these jurisdictions, right? And say, is this even something that people will deem legitimate? And certainly the Wyoming bill that passed is a stamp of approval that says, yes, we are down for innovation, right? Even on the legal structure level. I think that there's a look. There's a possibility that uh, DAO structures will just be the most efficient way to organize human activity. Which may not be that case yet, but software has the ability to 
increasingly lower cost. If you get to a point where you can plug, you know, plug and play all these different components together, you have lots of, uh, you know, sophisticated and also sensible controls around moving around money. You can reduce the fraud that incurs internally in organizations. That's a big issue. You can get better decision making if this notion that a hive mind is better than experts at making decisions. And it may not be in all instances, but let's say in a, in a number of instances, it is. Um, and it's entirely digitally native, right? So it can talk to other projects that are relying on a blockchain. Uh, it can talk to other DAOs or other organizations. There's a lot of potential efficiencies that can emerge. And if those efficiencies emerge, then I imagine it will become an increasingly important part of the organizational landscape around the globe. It's not going to matter where you are if you have and can be part of something that operates better, faster, cheaper. Presumably, that will lead to more profit, and presumably, that will also uh, lead to a lot of advantages. So, I think the rest of the globe will probably just have to catch up when it comes to this. But there's lots of assumptions there, right? I think what's also great is that it, it's very participatory. You know, there's a lot of very strong democratic notions that are baked into DApps. You know, people are deciding to work together towards something. They're providing their input and decision uh, decision making processes. So you can have organizations that are not run by the loudest people, the most you know aggressive people, but by an entire group, regardless of you know their background and um, and their perspective can actually get um, can be heard. Right. So I think organizations struggle with this today, especially if they're large. You know, how do you make sure that the person that's a more frontline worker has their voice heard and is not getting trampled over by their bosses or or folks that are on top of them? Yeah, so. absolutely. I have one question on on that actually. You know, on the point of participation, how do you incentivize long term participation in DAOs? Yeah, this is a big question. Um, so we found on the Lao side, uh, we have about you know about 50% participation for all votes. It's a pretty small group of people. So due to US regulations right now, it's limited to 99 people that can join a DAO if you want to do it kind of uh, completely above board. And mm -hmm. the participation rates are fairly high. You know, if you look at um, participation on you know Web2 platforms, it's usually pretty low. Looking at like a subreddit, I don't know the exact numbers, but based on my time from Wikipedia, um, we would know that only like two percent of any of any person that uh, that looked at and or uh, saw a page on Wikipedia would uh, actually make an edit of some sort, would take some sort of like additional action, and um, that's pretty low, right? It's very few people would do that. Uh, on DAOs, we're seeing much higher participation. Um, I think one question that people are exploring is the degree to which we're going to be able to create some sort of incentivization systems. So ways to incentivize more active participants or folks that are adding more to an organization. Those are complex problems. So folks are thinking about how to build reputation systems so that you can get credited in some sort of way reputationally. If you do a lot of positive work for an organization, uh, some ecosystems like the YFI and Yearn ecosystem are thinking about kind of bonus-like structures, which are really interesting. And then other people are exploring how to penalize people that don't participate. So there's kind of a menu of experiments that are occurring. I don't think anybody has the answer. And through this kind of competition, experimentation, I imagine that we'll begin to find more and more solutions there, different ways to, uh, you know, to get folks uh, uh, to participate more. I also just don't know if you need 
that much participation. You know, maybe the right way to run a DAO is a little bit like the internet uh, through rough consensus, not like absolute consensus. So mm. maybe we're, we're just kind of imbuing these notions that everybody needs to weigh in on something when a better model could be, well, the people that are paying attention should weigh in when they're paying attention. And if you disagree with the direction of the group, you can leave really easily and you can get back the money that you contributed or, or sell your interest or in some way um, be able to exit more freely. So maybe that's the solution too. We don't know the answer. You mentioned you're in protocol and I mean, I guess there are other DAOs as well, like Curve DAO. Um, are, are there a few in particular that you've kind of modeled the Lao or Flamingo DAO, Neptune off of, or just DAOs that give you inspiration as you think about new ways to structure DAOs down the line? Yeah, com- uh, completely. You know, in many ways, the Lao was modeled off of one of the the second great experiment in the Ethereum ecosystem around DAOs, which was a project called Moloch DAO. Uh, so Moloch DAO, the concept was to pull together capital and give great technologist grants, just like small gifts of money so that they could spend some time to develop, um, you know, develop some tech or solve a technical problem or research a technical problem um, that folks in the ecosystem thought were worthy of time and attention. And so a lot of the governance related to Lao, at least initially, was modeled uh, off of the initial Moloch DAO ecosystem. Um, but today, since we're seeing a pro- proliferation of DAOs and lots of different governance models emerging, there's plenty of other examples that I, I imagine uh, we're going to continue to learn from. I do think the urine ecosystem is completely fascinating um, and is, is doing a lot of really interesting experimentation around governance. You know, there's folks working for these DAOs that just emerge out of the woodwork. They emerge out of the, the noise of the internet, and uh, now they're working for these DAOs. Uh, another really interesting project is a project called Badger DAO, which started with nothing. Um, they, they started uh, by talking to ecosystems that they thought were, you know, going to support the initiatives that they were hoping to, to build, which was really building bridges between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And they provided a whole bunch of early uh, communities, folks that have been deep in the Ethereum ecosystem, Bitcoin ecosystems with tokens so that they could weigh in on decisions. And from nothing, they built a really interesting project that's trying to navigate this intersection between Bitcoin and Ethereum. So deep in the tech stack, but definitely something that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I want to spend the last few moments here with you talking about the new initiative that you brought up earlier called Neptune DAO, which focuses on providing you know projects with initial bootstrapping liquidity, and yeah, get your thoughts on you know how that project is going, how the DAO is going, whether the community looks fairly different from the other ones uh, that we've been talking about, and what sort of milestones or, or challenges you think this specific DAO will face, right? Because I, f- I feel like this is the first DAO that is focusing on bring liquidity to DeFi projects. Yeah, it's uh, super interesting. There's definitely an overlap uh, between some members uh, of the Lab Flamingo and Neptune. Uh, but each time we launch a DAO, new folks come in, new voices come in, uh, new perspectives come in. And that's what's fascinating. So the way we kind of view it, it it's a, a little bit like, you know, new brain cells are getting added to this hive mind. So right now it's it's a pretty big brain, right? It's got some of the people that are super deep in the ecosystem, have been in the ecosystem, either Bitcoin or Ethereum from the beginning. 
are running massive projects or working at massive projects. So uh, it's a really nice mix of folks scattered, you know, mostly across the globe with reasonable constraints put in to deal with AML or your customer related issues. And uh, the challenge with Neptune is really agility. So DeFi moves incredibly fast. So the one reason why we were excited to push on Neptune was to try to explore that piece too. Like how can we get collective decision-making to move at the speed of the internet? And uh, that that's some of the challenges that we're pushing through and sorting out. Um, that also is why I was noting maybe the right answer here is not you know intensive voting, like everybody's voting for everything all the time. Maybe instead it's operating via rough consensus where people float in, they, you know, the folks that are paying attention at any point in time weigh in and you kind of trust the collective group to make the right decisions. And then if you're unhappy, you walk away. And you, you either can sell your interest or get back the capital that you contributed. Yeah, it's that trade-off between decentralization and efficiency <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think the solution that we have right now is, well, it should be top-down. We should put experts at different positions. It's like the military, right? You should have a general, you should have you know, captains, um, you know, sergeants, et cetera, that are kind of managing things on the ground. And it looks like a tree of some sort, right? There's a small group of people at the top and then different people with different responsibilities, um, you know, going down from there. And it works incredibly well, right? Uh, we built incredible technology institutions using this very hierarchical structure. I personally just think the internet operates differently. It's very bottom up. So instead of imposing hierarchy on the internet, which probably is not going to work, what may make sense is to kind of take the core aspects of the internet and of a blockchain, which is rough consensus. You know, um, if you if you have that rough consensus, maybe that's just as good of a decision making, and you can balance decentralization with agility. So uh, it's it's uh, definitely fascinating. Um, Neptune is uh, another great experiment. What we're hoping to see even around Neptune is not just one DAO, but an entire constellation of of DAOs, so Neptune and a bunch of moons uh, that are Mm -hmm. all kind of loosely aligned, but making independent decisions. And hopefully that can help, you know, help the best projects that are merging the ecosystem get the support that they need, but at the same time, um, but at the same time, uh, making sure that this collective brain can figure out what the best projects are. You know, they can do the rapidly do the technical due diligence. They can reach out to the team assess whether or not they're good at what they're doing. They can model out any economic benefits or or losses or risks that are associated with it. And that just happens kind of organically as opposed to like having a team dedicated to doing this, you know, 14 hours a day, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'll be definitely keeping a keen eye uh, on, you know, how Neptune DAO progresses and how the ecosystem grows, right? That's probably the most exciting part is that it's never one and done. It's a dynamic organization. I guess that's another D word <laughs> that we can yeah. uh, can use uh, to describe DAOs there. Well, Aaron, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation um, for me, for sure. This is the first time I'm learning about the many things that you're talking about with respect to DAOs. But as we wrap up here, I would love to know what other questions you still have about DAOs that you're continuing to explore yourself or, you know, with the teams that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the questions are, are technical. Uh, so they're trying to figure out, um, you know, how do we lower the cost of keeping pooled assets uh, safe and secure? Like, how do you prevent cybersecurity attacks, thefts, 
malicious actors from taking assets that have been pulled together from a whole bunch of different voices. So those are challenges that that um, we spend quite a bit of time thinking through. Uh, the second kind of related point to that is, you know, how do you make these tools so easy to use uh, that they can be used on your mobile device, they can be used in a Discord channel, they can be used, uh, you know, kind of across the web. So those are other challenges that, that I think a lot about. Um, the third one falls into the regulatory bucket. Now, how do we build uh, appropriate um, guardrails, you know, and our connection points into the real world so that DAOs don't have to operate kind of at the margin, they can instead operate at the center. Uh, you know, there's some very large DeFi projects now, they're thinking about things like acquiring more traditional companies, they should be able to do that. You know, if this group of people online uh, that are supporting a project feel like that's a good decision, why should that not be a possibility? Um, and then I think the last point is a little bit about what I was talking about before. Uh, you know, it's a hypothesis that this collective mind, this collective will, this collective group of people can make better decisions than experts. And I think that this is going to be one of these longstanding questions where there's not an answer. And uh, those are the, the assumptions that we're still testing kind of on the ground with actual capital uh, at this point in time. So, you know, what will win out in the end? Will it be this collective voice or will it be a small group of experts? Um, and which which one in the long run will lead to better decisions. So that's another area that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, fascinating. Aaron, it's been an absolute honor chatting with you today. You know, we hope to invite our audience to learn more about the projects that you're leading and involved in, of course. As we're talking right now, DAOs, I feel like, are just coming out of this sort of fringe sub-industry of crypto. But soon, like NFTs and maybe social tokens, it will be going more mainstream so, Aaron, thank you again so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked. Hope to bring you on again very soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Leslie. Really appreciate it. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.